arrested in Bristol. And their trial took place in February this year. Adrian Clark was acquitted, but the other two were found guilty. It was reported that while they were waiting for the verdict, Christians gathered in the courtroom and sang hymns and prayed. Why? Because they believed the case should never have been brought, and it was merely an attempt to silence the gospel. Because the three men involved had been preaching on the streets of Bristol at the time of their arrest. Now, during the trial, I saw many Facebook posts calling Christians worldwide to pray for these men. Pray that they would be acquitted and pray that the gospel would no longer be silenced. During the preaching in question, Michael Stockwell declared, men should be able to proclaim the truth and have diverse differences in the public forum, agreeing to disagree without harm or repercussions. Christians across the world jumped on the fact that the prosecutor in the case remarked, to say to someone that Jesus is the only God is not a matter of truth. To the extent that they are saying that the only way to God is through Jesus, that cannot be the truth. After the trial and the guilty verdicts, the chief executive of the Christian Legal Centre said, The Bible and its teachings are the foundation of our society and provided many of the freedoms and protections that we still enjoy today. So it is extraordinary that the prosecution, speaking on behalf of the state, could say that the Bible contains abusive words, which when spoken in public constitute a criminal offence. Now I totally agree with what Michael Stockwell said. And I fundamentally disagree with the view of the prosecutor. But I cannot agree with the Christian Legal Centre. And I could not pray in the way all the Facebook posts were asking me to. Because of everything else that Stockwell and his friends preached on that day in July. They stood in the middle of the Broadmead Shopping Centre on the first day of the Muslim Festival of Eid. It's not clear if that timing is deliberate, but seems highly coincidental. They told passing Muslims that their God did not exist and called Muhammad a thief and a liar. Stockwell told the increasingly angry crowd that gathered, you will die for your sins and be cast into hell. Jesus is coming back and taking vengeance. Clark named several religions and declared that they would all lead to the gates and indeed the very depths of hell. The men also attacked the gay community, divorced people, and anyone having sex outside of marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not directly disagreeing with the truth of the majority of what they said. From the reports I've read, they had reasonable biblical basis for the majority, but clearly not all of their claims. Without actually knowing the full extent of what they preached that day, it would be unfair of me to say they were being deceitful or downright wrong. It was claimed that these men were on trial simply for sharing, sharing the word of God, for preaching the gospel as we are called to do. The men said they were there to spread the message of love and simply read from the King James Bible. But Stockwell and friends found themselves in court charged with religiously aggravated public disorder. Their words and tone became angry and hateful as the crowd grew more and more offended by them. Is that the way the gospel should be spread? Is that how to share a message of love? Does that really make the gospel sound in any way like what the word means? Good news. 
Now, while I wouldn't want to claim that God isn't able to make it happen, is it likely that many hearts were won for the kingdom that day? Unfortunately, here in Taunton, we are too aware that this sort of event, this method of gospel preaching, is not isolated to three men on one Bristol day. We see this sort of preaching to one degree or another across the country, across the world. Think of the hateful words we've heard from Westboro Baptist Church in America in recent years. Perhaps these people, who claim to be so passionate about the truth of the word of God, should take a glance at our passage for tonight from 1 Peter. But before we hear from Peter, we may need to examine ourselves and be reminded that we can all be guilty of doing the same sort of damage, even if in less obvious ways. Guy's going to put on just a short video and then Mark's going to read for us. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, 
so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So before we look at what this passage has to teach us, let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at your word tonight, you would open our hearts to see where we need to be changed by you, changed by your spirit. Make us attentive to your word this evening, Father. Amen. So the first thing this passage tells us is when to share the gospel. When exactly is the right time? How do you possibly know whether to say something or to stay quiet? Well, Peter gives us a very simple answer to the question of when to share. And that simple answer is always. Look at verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer. Always. All the time. Every day. Every minute. Wherever we are. Whoever we're talking to. Always be prepared. That's when. That's how we know whether to say something or not. To share the gospel with our friends, our family, our neighbours, our colleagues. Is it at a time that could reasonably come under the definition of always? Well, not quite. Because Peter actually says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. There's an implication here that primarily our sharing of the gospel is as a response. As a response to the questions of those friends, family, neighbours, colleagues. So there's an expectation here from Peter that those people will ask. They will have questions. And one question in particular. Why do you have hope? Not why do you go on about Jesus all the time? Not why do you spend your life at church? Not why are you always praying? Not why are you so holier than thou? Why do you have hope? It's clear that in Peter's mind, our sharing of the gospel has little to do with declaring that we know the truth and no one else does. It's not about showing everybody where they're going wrong and proclaiming them to be filthy sinners who will burn in hell. It's about offering hope, 
holding out hope to a hopeless world. And we'll come back to what that hope is in a minute. But in order for people to ask you to give a reason for the hope you have, they have to know one thing, that you have hope. So think, do your friends, your family, your neighbours, your colleagues, do they know that you have hope? Do they know that you are trusting in the promises of God for your future and for today? Are you sure? When you make it out of the other side of difficult times, do they know what got you through? Or are they just amazed at your resilience? Do they know that it's only by putting your trust in God and relying on the prayers of others when you couldn't pray that you made it through? When you have amazing, miraculous answer to prayer, do they know that you brought something to God and he provided? Or do they just think you're one of the lucky ones? The majority of us, if we're honest, find it difficult to talk to our friends about Jesus. We know we're supposed to. We want them to know him. But we just don't know how to start that conversation. But maybe that's because we don't ever talk about him unless we've got our evangelism hat on. We find it much easier to gossip about what the neighbours have been up to than what God's been doing. I know that lots of us made a real concerted effort when people asked us about the funding for this building and talked about how generous everyone had been to respond by saying that actually, no, God had been really generous. God had provided this building because we wanted God to have the glory and not us. And I personally discovered something amazing happened when I did that. No one laughed. No one said, okay then, and left quickly. Don't get me wrong, no one said, really? That's amazing. I must know more. Please tell me the gospel. I must be a Christian today. Didn't happen. But no one looked at me like I had two heads. We had a brilliant example earlier with the response to those bars of chocolate. Just to talk about how generous God had been to us and so we can be generous back. Do you gossip God? Is his name part of your everyday conversation? If not, why would anyone ever ask you to give the reason for the hope you have? When should we share the good news? Always. All the time. Even when it's hard. Look at verse 13 and 14. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, we look out into the world and we know that there are many who would seek to harm us for doing good. We know that Christians across the world face incredible persecution on a daily basis. But Peter says, don't let that persecution or the threat of persecution or even the fear of persecution stop you. Why would we? Why should we? We have hope. We have the hope of glory beyond this world. What can this world actually do to us? Even if we lose our lives for the sake of sharing good news, that will merely send us home. 
There is nothing to be afraid of. Keep going, even if you're suffering for it. With one caveat, which brings us to the next thing Peter has to say about sharing the gospel, and that's how to do it. Look at verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. With gentleness and respect. That's the problem I have with street preachers who stand and shout at people, who denigrate their faith or their lifestyle. Those who condemn people to hell without knowing anything about them. That's not gentleness. That's not respect. That's hateful, spiteful, and angry. Now, Peter says that even if we act with gentleness and respect, even if we have clear consciences, even if we are humble and compassionate, as he calls us to be in verse 8, there will be those who speak maliciously against us. There will always be those who are suspicious or cynical. There will be those who accuse us of hypocrisy and judgmental attitudes. And there'll be times when they're right because we're fallen and we get it wrong. But there will hopefully be more times when they're wrong and should be ashamed. They should be ashamed, not us. If we're sharing the good news with gentleness, respect, humility and compassion, if we're seeking to understand the lives or beliefs of those around us, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Under those circumstances, our suffering for the sake of the gospel is nothing to be feared. But look at verse 17. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Just because you're suffering for preaching the gospel, for spreading the good news, doesn't mean you're getting it right. It doesn't mean that your suffering is because the enemy is angry. The enemy might be rejoicing at the way you are sharing the gospel. Are you suffering despite the way you shared the good news or because of it? Are we acting in ways that cause others to accuse us of hypocrisy, homophobia, falseness, arrogance, division, all the other things leveled at Christians in that video? Are we being unlike Christ? Or do we, as Paul requested in Philippians, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus? Are we gentle? Are we humble? Do we have compassion for the lost? If we're angry, is it because of injustice or that God is maligned? Are we trying to bully people into the kingdom? Or maybe we try and cajole them in? Well, I think what Peter would suggest is that we should love them in. Let me read from chapter 2 where Peter talks about this more. From verse 12 he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is by, it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. 
we've begun to consider this year, how can we, as a church, be good news to this village? How can our very presence here make our village a better place to live? Seems to me that that's the sort of gospel sharing Peter is talking about. This is the good lives among the pagans, the doing good that he calls us to. It's that sort of behavior, (coughs) seeking to make the place we live, the place we work, the place we study, the place we worship, a better place just by being there. When combined with gossiping God that will draw people to the kingdom, that will make people question why we're different. That will lead them to ask for the reason for the hope you have. So what then do we have to tell them? When we've reached the point at which our friends, our family, our neighbours, our colleagues ask us to give the reason for the hope we have, what is it that we should tell them? What is the good news? Working on this passage gave me one of those moments when you suddenly see a verse you are absolutely certain has never been there before. I know I've read this passage many times. I'm fairly certain I've preached on this passage before, but verse 19 was a revelation to me. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It was a revelation. I didn't get it. And if I'm honest, it took quite a lot of work before actually looking it up helped either. Because there are so many different theories about what Peter is talking about. In fact, it's this verse that forms the basis of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. As it's been taken to mean that Jesus went to the place where disobedient people go after death and preached the gospel to them, giving them the opportunity to repent. Debate is had over when Jesus did this, who he was talking to, and what he told them. And there is more than one school of thought for each of those. But having read many interpretations, the following seems to make the most sense to me. Firstly, I think that Peter wants to be able to say something about baptism in the later verses, and that leads him to Noah. So I think that by referring to those who were disobedient in the time of Noah, it's just Peter using them as an example. I think this is one of those occasions when those of us who uh, write a sermon and get up to preach think we're using a brilliant illustration. But you haven't got a clue what we're talking about because we've missed a step out in our logic or the example just doesn't work for you. It doesn't make sense. Peter isn't saying, I don't think, that Jesus only went to the people who were disobedient in the time of Noah. And I'm not going to go into what Peter says about baptism because it's a bit of a tangent. But I think Peter is just using Noah because it gets him to salvation. Secondly, I think that Peter is explaining what happened on Easter Saturday, or at least in the gap between Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. See, in the creed we declare, he descended to the dead. That's not talking about Jesus dying. It means he went down into hell. He went to the place where those who rejected him were. And thirdly, he went to proclaim a truth. The truth Peter has already mentioned in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 
He didn't go to evangelize these spirits and offer them a second chance because that just doesn't sit right with the rest of Scripture. I believe Jesus went to proclaim that the power of sin and hell over mankind was broken. He went down into hell to declare that the enemy's hold over us was powerless against the might of our God. Peter says that Jesus made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus making a proclamation to those gathered in the synagogue, equally but less obviously imprisoned. And it may appear on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of God's favor. What is the salvation that Peter has in his mind? What is the good news that we're called to share all the time with gentleness and compassion? Freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, freedom from oppression, the favor of God. There is a better way. There is a better way than everything this world has to offer. There is the chance to be free. Not free from a physical prison, but free from everything that binds us. Everything that keeps us from God. The good news, if we return to Peter and verse 18, is this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The word used for to bring you to God was also used in Greek to mean an audience with the king. Now, if any of us were to dare to an attempt an audience with the queen without first being invited, vetted, probably rejected, we would be swiftly removed from her presence and arrested. How much less welcome, how much less entitled in our fallen human state are we to simply walk into the presence of God? How much more should we fear the punishment awaiting us if we attempt it? But the good news that we have to share is that because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection and only that, we can enter into the very throne room of the king of all creation, free from shame. Free from fear, full of hope. And that sounds like news worth sharing. Amen.